Hi, my friends, and welcome to From Here to There. In this podcast, I'm going to be sharing about the lives of many people throughout history and people alive today that God has worked through in order to bring increase and influence of His kingdom here on earth. But in this first series, I'm really looking forward to sharing with you my story, how God was able to take me from powerless to powerful and from the nest to the nations. I really believe that as you listen, God is going to give you keys to moving forward toward your God destiny. So let's get started with this week's message. God has a plan to fill the earth with His goodness. He works in every generation in this dimension that we call time. Just like the Word became flesh in Jesus Christ, God's Word is still becoming flesh as individuals receive it, believe it, and act on it. We become part of the symphony of the ages, God's movement of love toward the world. This week, I hope to inspire you with the story of Nepal's church. The story of the church is a beautiful tapestry of many colored lives of ordinary people who sought and followed the Father's plan during their lifetime. A life well lived is an inspiration and it leaves a legacy behind, a foundation for others to build upon. I want my life to be that. I want not only to start, but to finish the race God has prepared for me. And one day here, well done, good and faithful servant. Don't you want that also? You know, sadly, statistics show that most people don't fulfill everything God had planned for them. There are always things, obstacles, like we talked about last week, that will try to derail us. There are decisions that we have to make that sometimes we don't want to make. There are people who hurt us. There are things that interfere with our divine relationships. And sometimes there are events that just happen in our life, tragedies that knock us back. But, you know, I want to finish my course, and God wants you to finish your course. This scripture has always been meaningful to me, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. Paul's writing, and he says, According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So let me explain what this scripture means to me. We are all builders. We are building our lives. We are building marriages, building families, building our businesses, our ministries, our churches. We are all building upon the life and work of someone who lived before. So it's important how we build. Paul's scripture said there can be no other foundation than Jesus Christ. And to me, Jesus is the word. We know that. But Christ means the anointed one or the anointing, the presence of God and his Holy Spirit. And so when we talk about the gold and the silver and the precious stones, we're talking about things that are eternal, things that are not going to burn up with fire. 
When we talk about wood, hay, and straw, these are things that are perishable, short-lived. And so it says the fire will test each one's work. And what this means to me is what are we building our lives with? What are we building our ministries with? Are we building just with natural methods? You know, books are good. People's experiences are good. But we don't build our lives upon perishable things. What God wants us to build on are the things that are eternal, that last. The precious metals he mentions, gold, silver, and the jewels, are actually formed or purified with fire. And so when we build upon what God speaks to us, the things of the Spirit, we are building our life on something that will last forever. And so God wants us to live that way. He wants us to build with eternity in mind. And again, he wants to co-labor with us. He didn't just say to me, go start a Bible school, and then I had to figure it all out myself. He wants to lead you along the way. He wants to show you things, the obstacles that'll be ahead. You know, they call prayers watchmen on the walls. And in those days when there were walls around the cities to protect, the watchman would get up and on the wall, you could see out far ahead. You can see when the enemies are coming. And so when we are people of prayer, we're watching God will show us the obstacles. That makes our work very easy. The doors are already open. The walls are already broken down. We don't have to keep stopping and beating, trying to get our way through. Sometimes if you feel like you're always coming up to an obstacle and having to pound your way through it, maybe you're building with fleshly material, your own strength, your own plan. Maybe you need to kick over and spend some time with the Lord to get his easier, his highway, I call it. Not the lower way, but the highway. I want to note, though, for everyone, that those building materials have nothing to do with being saved, but they do have to do with building things that will last. And so we were led by the Holy Spirit to launch this work in Nepal at this specific time. Remember, I have told you how God had sparked in my spirit to get my attention. He had shown us specific things in prayer. This is how we build in the Spirit. God was working in the nation of Nepal, and it was a strategic time in the nation of Nepal, and he had a clear and a specific plan. And even sometimes when we don't hear it, like I did at that lunch that day, he'll get our attention. If we are people who look to him, he will get our attention. So in this episode, I want to share a little bit with you about the history of the church in Nepal, because it's a very young church, only 60 years old, but it had a pure and a good foundation built on things of the Spirit. So I'm going to read some passages here from a paper that I wrote, that it was all researched. I have all the footnotes of and the credits of who said what, if you ever want any more reading material, or if you want to know, just write to me. I don't know if you know how to write to me. You can write to me on Facebook. You can go on to our website, dunamisworld.org, and you can write to me there. But let's start here. This paper reads like this. The year 1628 marks the first recorded date of any non-Asian entering Kathmandu and the Valley of Nepal. The visitor was Father Joan Cabral, a Portuguese priest from the Southern Tibet Mission, who was on his way to Bengal, India. You know, if you study church history, you're going to find that these Jesuit priests were the original missionaries. I mean, these guys are out trekking in the Himalayas in the 1600s 
where there was no roads, no comforts of home, right? And so they're rock stars, in my opinion. In April of 1662, that was 1628, when the first priest went into Nepal. In April of 1662, two Jesuit priests became the first to leave written accounts of the Himalayan kingdom. And they stated this, the king there is a powerful monarch. He is a pagan, but he's not an opponent of the gospel of Christ. Cindy Perry, in her book, A Biographical History of the Church of Nepal, quotes from what they said. They said, the king welcomed the fathers very warmly, perhaps because of a telescope, which was up to that time unknown in Nepal, and other mathematical instruments, which aroused the royal curiosity to such an extent that he wished to keep the fathers with him, and he only allowed them to go after extracting a promise to return. He promised them that when they came back, he would build a house for the use of our order and provide a large annual subsidy, and above all, would permit them to preach the gospel in his state. But that was 1662. By 1715, two Capuchin friars were residents in Kathmandu. The station at Kathmandu began to develop as a mission in its own right. You see, really, Nepal was a stopping place between the real mission in Tibet, which is where they were focused, and India, where they had missions. But it says here that by 715, the Kathmandu mission was a mission in it of its own. And over the next 50 years, ministry houses were established in three of the four city kingdoms of the Nepal Valley. Kathmandu, Badagan, which is Bhaktapur today, and Patan. The kings were attracted by the father's knowledge of science and medicine and were impressed by their simple lives and their willingness to help the needy regardless of caste or status. Two churches were built and dedicated around 1760, one in Kathmandu and another in Badagan, Bhaktapur. The Capuchin fathers worked in the Kathmandu Valley for 54 years. I'm not sure if it was the same ones or different ones, but the mission went on for 54 years despite recurring opposition from the priestly Brahmin caste. However, in 1768, King Prithvi Narayan Shah sought to unify the tribes and kingdoms of Nepal to get them brought together as a defense against their powerful neighbors. And because he suspected the fathers because of their alliance with the British in India, once he came to his throne, he became hostile toward them and he made it difficult for them to remain in the country. They left with a group of 57 Nepali converts, 14 families, in 1769 because they refused the demand of the king to revert to Hinduism. They settled in Bihar, India, and for the next 180 years, Nepal remained virtually untouched by any foreigners and stood opposed to the Christian faith. Bold Nepali Christians brought in literature and tried to resettle in their homeland but they were never accepted by the Hindu kingdom. There are heroic stories of those who prayed for their countrymen and acted upon their newfound faith. One significant conversion was that of a woman named Chandra Leela, born in 1840. She was the daughter of a wealthy Brahmin priest of the royal family. She had been betrothed at the age of seven and widowed two years later and then orphaned at the age of 14. 
Though she'd never lived with her husband, custom decreed that she could not marry again. She was well-educated by her father, and so she traveled to many holy places, studying Hinduism and seeking peace. On one trip to Darjeeling, she found the peace she had longed for in a message shared by a young Indian woman. His name was Jesus Christ. One hundred years before Nepal would open its border, this courageous woman preached the gospel in her nation, protected by her wealth and her status from punishment. Her only convert was her brother. However, many seeds like these were planted in Nepal during the closed era. Though Nepal's door was tightly closed, India was buzzing with mission energy during the 19th century. Darjeeling particularly became a base of operations. William McFarlane of the Church of Scotland formed the Eastern Himalayan Mission in 1870. It was built upon the foundation of missionaries that had preceded him and strong national leaders emerged from this mission. One was Ganga Prasad Prahan, one of the early graduates of McFarlane's Bible School and the first known ordained Nepali pastor. Prahan was instrumental in printing Christian literature in Nepali as well as translating scripture. He reportedly had a flair for connecting with people through words. And he, quote, strongly influenced the Nepali language, which was growing by leaps and bounds in these days, unquote. His work included catechism lessons, books, fables, stories, songs, and the initial foundations for the first Nepali Bible, which was published in 1914. A song he wrote, Prabhu Arhi Sune Lao, which is translated, God Hear Our Prayer, became the anthem for the faithful workers God had assembled all across the Nepal-India border. It was a prayer that cried out to God for the opening of a nation and for specific people groups in Nepal, and it is still remembered and sung in Nepal today. The World Mission Prayer League sought to start a mission in Nepal and sent missionaries for this purpose, but it wasn't possible to carry on any Christian work in Nepal due to the Hindu opposition. So these missionaries also settled in Darjeeling and started the Darjeeling Hills Bible School in 1954, which was a joint mission venture of the Lutheran and Presbyterian churches. The town of Merrick was selected as a strategic location because it was just three miles inside the eastern border of Nepal. The missionaries could contact hundreds of Nepalese at Merrick every day as they came for marketing. So with the Bible school, they began open-air preaching, literature distribution, adult education, and medical work. This obvious God movement was simultaneously taking place from its eastern center in Darjeeling to other Indian border towns in the central and west of Nepal. It was a unique orchestration of the Church of Scotland Presbyterians, the Baptist Missions, the Regions Beyond Missionary Union of the United Kingdom, the American Assemblies of God, and even the Thomas Christians of India, all working with one heart and prayer toward the evangelization of a nation that they really loved with the passion that God had given them. It would take volumes to write of the dedicated laborers, both foreign and local, who literally planted their lives into this mission. Rajendra Rangong, one of the only remaining Nepali Christian pioneers alive today, writes, they were missionaries and expatriates who spent almost their entire lives in various parts of India at the border towns. 
Their vision, experience, dedication, and sacrifice help the Nepalese partners to play their part. What is also very significant is the number of women who were vitally involved in this movement. According to Cindy Perry, most of the missionary pioneers among Nepali along the border were women. Two European women, Hilda Steele and Lily O'Hanlon, were preparing in 1936 to begin an independent initiative in the border town of Nautanwa. They planned to revive a medical mission that had been begun years before by a pioneer missionary, Dr. Catherine Harbord. While in Ireland gathering support, they held prayer meetings focused on God's work among the Nepalese. During one of these times of prayer, the Lord clearly spoke to them from 1 Samuel 10:26 to form a band of men whose hearts God had touched and call it the Nepal Evangelistic Band. It was this group of missionaries and Nepali leaders who trekked three days to Pokhara to initiate the very first Nepali church that was birthed alongside a mission hospital. Profound changes were taking place in Nepal when democracy opened her doors. For centuries, Nepal had been a medieval and feudal society. But suddenly it was catapulted into the modern world, and foreign aid was bringing in schools and medicine, roads and runways were being built. All of this served to accelerate the Christian movement, because people were ready and open to change in the nation. The Nepal Evangelistic Band, who eventually became the International Nepal Fellowship, INF, was granted legal permission to build their shining hospital in Pokhara. Other border groups had formed the United Mission to Nepal, UMN, and received permission from the Nepal government to establish hospitals in Tanzan and Kathmandu. Through these medical missions, an indigenous Nepali church was forming. The Catholics were also active in education, and they started St. Xavier's School in 1951, which is in Lalitpur, and St. Mary's in 1955, same region of Kathmandu. Social service became the vehicle that transported Christianity to the people. The gospel was spreading quickly on the pathway prayer had prepared. Foreigners were strictly not allowed to be involved in any conversion work, So it was the Nepali Christians who'd already been active in their ministries and churches in India who relocated to their ancestral home and began sharing their testimonies. The early churches in Nepal were all under Nepali leadership as the missionaries offered encouragement and assistance. An indication of the indigenous nature of these churches is seen in the history of the Ganeshore Church where the establishing committee of Nepalese, and this is a quote, studied the book of Acts, and sought God's guidance through prayer. None of us had any theological background, end of quote. The group agreed to remain interdenominational, to contextualize the sacraments, and to use donations to support the ministry leaders. Being self-supporting and self-propagating and breaking ground in a context with no knowledge of Christianity, this movement was very similar to that of the early church before 200 A.D., More political changes took place from 1960 to 1989. King Mahendra Shah, attempting to unite Nepal, promoted one religion, one country, one language, one dress. These changes instigated severe persecution of Christians in these newly established churches. However, the persecution only served to refine the believers, purifying their motives and faith, 
Believers who were jailed turned to converting prisoners who were very responsive. This Christian message was very different from anything the Nepalese people had ever heard. Radical transformation of individual lives challenged family members and friends to investigate this truth that their loved ones proclaimed. According to Rajendra Rangang, who was ministering during this time, quote, this was more the rule than the exception. So the first churches that were in, established in Nepal were the Ramgat Church in Pokhara in 1952, which was established by the Nepal Evangelistic Band, the Assemblies of God Fellowship in Nepal Gunj in 1953, the Putali Sadek Beth Shalom Church in Kathmandu in 1953, which was begun by the Mar Thomas Christians from India, the Ganeshur Church in Kathmandu in 1956, formed by the United Mission to Nepal, and the Tanzan Church in 1959 also formed by the United Mission to Nepal. So this church that I went to on my very first trip was one of those very first five churches. Back to my paper. A recorded Pentecostal movement affected at least three of the earliest churches during the 1960s, according to an article in the Oxford Encyclopedia of South Asian Christianity written by Bal Krishna Sharma. He notes the Nepal Gunge area, Christianity from the start, was founded in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, and healing. He also claims that an unexpected outpouring of the Spirit took place in Pokhara in 1966 as both Nepalese and expatriates were praying for revival. Rajendra Rangan writes a very distinct phenomenon that resulted in the revival and growth of churches was the work of the Holy Spirit. Sick people were healed, alcoholics and drug addicts set free, and their changed lives were a powerful witness to family and friends. According to John Barclay of the United Mission to Nepal, some other reasons the church grew during the persecution were the unity among the churches, an emphasis on praise and worship, and converts who were young, vigorous, and vibrant in evangelistic outreach. So this first generation of Christians were like the saints in Revelation 12. Revelation 12:10. Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. These believers were imprisoned and beaten, but full of joy and power. I have pictures I wish I could show you on this podcast that are so inspiring. Our Nepali disciple, Raju, who has worked with me all these years, when he was a child, was adopted by a pastor who was a young man involved in both the church in Pokhara and Tanzan. He was the spiritual father also of the pastor who invited us for the revival in Tanzan in 2008. And this man had told Raju as a child about that outpouring of the Holy Spirit that took place in that church. His comment was that we just read our Bible and did what the Bible said, and we got filled with the Holy Spirit. And so what I want to point out here is that the foundation of these people's lives formed a pure spiritual foundation for what God had called us to do when we went in our time. I'm about out of time here now. And so I guess I'll pick up next week and talk about 
the second generation, that's the first generation Christians in Nepal, and the foundation, the beautiful spiritual foundation, prayer foundation of the Nepali church. But, you know, we are a part of a God movement. God takeaways here. God has a plan to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory and goodness. We are living in the day when the gospel of the kingdom has almost been preached in every nation. That's Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. The Passion says, yet through it all, this joyful assurance of the realm of heaven's kingdom will be proclaimed all over the world, providing every nation with a demonstration of the reality of God. And after this, the end of the age will arrive. And the message, Matthew twenty four fourteen, all during this time, the good news, the message of the kingdom will be preached all over the world, a witness staked out in every country, and then the end will come. So we're living in this end of the age, and the gospel which began in Israel has moved around the globe and is now in its final frontier. The nations of Asia, the Middle East, North Africa are the primary unreached areas. And then we have regions like the U.S. that used to be hot and are now lukewarm. So there is a work to be done in our generation. God has a plan, again, number one, to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory Number two, we're living in the day when this gospel of the kingdom has almost been preached in every nation. Number three, one day we will stand before the Lord and see what we have built our life upon. So my last challenge to you, let us live on the cutting edge, friends, of what God is doing. When we live out there on the edge with God, we will see God's power. I want to let you know that we have just started our 13th class in Nepal. And, you know, if you want to help us, if you want to partner with us in spreading the word and the spirit and continuing to build the Church of Nepal, you can visit us on our website. That is dunamisworld.org, D-U-N-A-M-I-S-W-O-R-L-D.org. So I love you. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for my friends. Thank you. I pray, Lord, that today I've inspired them. You have a story like this in every nation. You are working all over the world looking. Your eyes are looking for those whose hearts are loyal, who say, here I am, Lord, use me. And so I pray, Lord, I call the callings out of my friends, and I call the callings into the kingdom for this hour and for this generation. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, and we'll continue with the story of Nepal next week. Thanks for listening today. I pray you were blessed and encouraged. One of my life scriptures is Hebrews 11.1 in the Jordan translation. It says, Now faith is the turning of dreams into deeds. It is betting your life on unseen realities. In Jesus Christ, you have what it takes to step into all God has prepared for you. If this episode's blessed you, please share it with someone else. I look forward to meeting with you again next week.